I didn't know we were playing f- praying for RCLA today, but I did. I actually talked to Rudy uh, just this week. And uh, if you're not familiar with Reformed Church of LA, uh, they're out in Linwood, and uh, they are a recent church startup. Uh, they started just before COVID, so you can imagine how easy that was, right? As an existing church who went through COVID, it was hard enough. Uh, but they're also a young church plant, and, and, and much like when we started Generations seven, eight years ago, whatever it was, uh, once, when, when you're in that initial phase of starting a church, oftentimes you're at your most uh, multiplying a reproductive phase. And, and Generations, in our first three years as Generations, we started three other churches and sent out groups, 30, 40 people to start other churches. And, and RCLA is like that, and Pastor Rudy is like that. They've been sending people out to Wilmington. They're having a second gathering. Um, they are trying to get in another year or so something started in Orange County in Santa Ana, uh, as well as they have something going. They have a small core group meeting. Uh, I forget where, but in the Inland Empire. I think San Bernardino. But this young startup church as they reproduce. Anyhow, I didn't know we were praying for them today, but yeah, like uh, John McCord said, man, just the needs that they have. Keep them in prayer. Uh, one point, good thing, thing that's coming up right now, if you are outside after service or you're in here before or after service, you'll see these slides for, uh, there are pictures of people that will pop up. We've got Casey and Yvette Staggs, we've got Edwin and Ashley Byrus, and we've got Nancy Duncan, who's not here. Uh, but they are, what we're, what we're putting them forward for is to become deacons. We taught on that a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy 3, that deacons are like lead servants, like they're leaders in the church that lead by serving the church. And really, it's, it's, a, it's a place where everyone can aspire to be. It's, it's a place of mature in faith and serving the body and leading others in service. And so those five people, they're in your app. If you look at the news section in your app, uh, we've got their pictures and a little bit about them. But this is a place where you, the church, uh, as we told you also in 1 Timothy, where you get to be involved. You take a look and say, hey, I know these leaders or I don't know these leaders. You can get to know them over the next few weeks. If you know them and have any concerns, by all means, we're inviting you. Come see me. Come let me know. If you have a concern, you can come anonymously. We just want to know. But as we look at these as our future leaders coming on probably first week in January or so, uh, we want to put them before you. And you may know them better, or you may not know them and want to know them. And so just know that they're there for you to see and, and to really be a part of approving them as deacons in our church. And so they're in your app if you have our church app. They're on the TVs out there. Otherwise, we can give you some more information. All right. Revelation chapter 3. That's where we are. So we're working our way through Revelation We did the opening chapter, some introduction to Revelation. If there's one thing, if you're here now and you missed the first message or two, here's something I've said that I want you to remember. Revelation is intended to be understood. It is not intended to be a mystery or to be confusing or to be, by all means, something that scares you or causes you anxiety. Early in the verses, in the first four or five verses, It says, blessed is the one who reads these words out loud, kind of like what I'm doing, and blessed are those who hear and who obey. Now, the implication there is that when you hear this, you will obey it. In other words, you are intended to understand it and then act on it. And so this book is not designed to be a mystery. 
It is rooted and embedded in Old Testament imagery, which we have seen. It's written to seven real churches, the seventh of which we're going to read about today. But they were intended to understand it and live it out, act on it. So between the Old Testament imagery, the teachings of Jesus, what John sees becomes evident. The reason that we have so much confusion in the church today around Revelation is that a lot of Christians, modern-day churchgoers, are not very familiar with Old Testament, with the Old Testament in general, but especially the imagery, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, things like that. But the Bible gives it to us. It is intended to be understood. Now, I want to use an example today. So if this is you, forgive me, but uh, everybody knows someone who eats zero meat, right? Now, I don't mean the person who doesn't eat meat, and I'm trying not to make eye contact over here, but, you know, someone who doesn't eat meat because they find it to be healthier for them. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the diehard vegan who, you know, like, meat is murder, right? Like, that believes you should not eat meat and that my bacon consumption is wrong. We pray for these people. <laughs> they could be enjoying bacon with me, right? Right? Now, I assume they eat zero meat by what they say, right? I'm going to make that assumption that they're not kind of mowing away steaks at home, right? We, we can assume that. So I'm talking about that person. That, you know, the cows are, you know, you know near human and, and should not be treated this way, and that you're destroying the tropical rainforest. I mean that, right? Now, if we were to leave church here today and go to In-N-Out and see that person eating at In-N-Out, like a double-double, animal style. <laughs> no animal style fitting in there, right? We would have questions about their sincerity, their conviction, their commitment, right? It would water down, at best, it would water down their message on the treatment of animals and the care for our planet, right? Why do we treat Christianity as something other than that? Why do we treat our faith and what, what God calls us to as something we can go part way and, and sound like we're all the way in, but really compromise back here? You with me? Why do we think, again, we use some obvious examples. Why would that person eating it in and out completely destroy their message? And yet, if this is where Jesus calls us to be, why do we seem to think somewhere back here is okay? That's kind of what we're looking at today. As we see the city of Laodicea, the final of the seven churches being written to by Jesus, we see them very compromising in their faith. I'm going to put this note on the screen. It's kind of a main, a main idea for today. Be zealous. Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea, calling them to be completely in for the gospel. Being zealous for Christ is the only acceptable way to live for Jesus. Being zealous for Christ is the only acceptable way. Being all in for Jesus is the only way Jesus says is pleasing to him. There is no expectation today that we are perfect. Falling short means we're aiming at something and we miss the mark, right? That's actually literally the definition of the word, the English word sin, missing the mark. 
It means we're aiming at that and we just don't succeed. See, perfection would be hitting it every time. My question is, why aren't we even aiming at it? Fair? Why do we think halfway is okay? Being zealous for Jesus is the only way that Jesus says is correct. So, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. Now, I'm going to pause in the middle. Let's just tell you about the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. So much so, there's a huge story that, that, that people always tell when they know anything about the, the city of Laodicea. There's a story that when a, a, an earthquake completely destroyed the city of Laodicea in, in about 60 AD. And when that happened, Rome offered to help them rebuild, offered to send money to help them rebuild. Rome being the behemoth empire on the planet at the time, right? And Laodicea being a city... Kind of like when a natural disaster, when a hurricane hits a, an area, a state, a city, a county, or something, like we want to help, right? Rome, having the resources, offers to help, and Laodicea says, no need, we, we have it handled. That's how wealthy they were. Like they were so wealthy, they didn't need help rebuilding. But in that mindset that, no, we've got it handled, that kind of bled into every other area of life, too. They felt like they could depend on themselves alone. There's another unique thing about the water in Laodicea. They had the Lycos River, which would travel through there, but it was so muddy it was undrinkable. And so they got water from two places. There was an aqueduct not far away that, kind of, uh, that, that uh, drew from a hot spring and they had this aqueduct that, that trapped it and then trickled it, kind of like uh, brought it in or piped it into, however they did it, brought it into Laodicea. But it started out hot, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it had cooled down. Now, hot water or hot springs, that's really cool. That's very therapeutic. That's really good, right? Warm doesn't quite do it. And then they would also bring in water from Sardis, another city we read about. They would bring in the cool water from there, but as it traveled in got warm as well, right? So they had this unique need as a city. I mean, we need water to live. And they were wealthy and very self-sufficient, but they had no water supply that was any good. They had to either bring it in here, and it was no longer hot, and they could bring it in here, and it was no longer cold, and that's important to the story of Laodicea. Two more things. They were well known for a textile industry. They made uh, a, a form, uh, like a, a um, it was a, a dark like a wool. They, they made this textile, and they were well known for their clothing. Kind of an early fashion, if you will, city. And then lastly, they had a very high medical care population. They were very advanced in their medicine, particularly in eye care. So imagine 2,000 years ago, just... You can imagine the healthcare 2,000 years ago, but they were very advanced for their day. Now, I remember the first time I ever taught through Revelation, I, was, I, I had planted a church in Huntington Beach. I lived in Orange County, started a church there. And when I hear about fashion, when I hear about wealth, when I hear about medicine, man, Orange County, right? If you live here in L.A., L.A. County, right? I mean, like we have, and probably more so than Orange County, fashion. For sure, there's a ton of wealth. 
Yes, there's a ton of poverty as well, but there is just huge resource between Orange County and LA. Most of you all live in Orange County or LA County, right? That this sounds so much like us, that this is probably the most relevant church to us today. Verse one, let's read it again. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now remember, Jesus reveals himself to the churches in unique and specific ways. He is drawing from the language in Revelation 1, one long description of Jesus, and then he takes parts, and each part he gives to the seven churches. And we've talked about that, that Jesus reveals himself in specific ways based on their needs. Right? If you're a person who is in need of marriage counseling, Jesus is not going to reveal himself as the person who deals with addiction. Right? He's going to rather be the person who reconciles relationship. And then over here, he's going to be the one who overcomes addiction. So he reveals himself in ways that are specific and particular to the needs of the church. So he says he is the amen, the so be it, the final, the exclamation point. That's who Jesus is. He says, this is who I am. I am the amen. He also calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Now, this is not saying that Jesus is created. Jesus is creator. He is uncreated God who became flesh. When he says the beginning of God's creation, he's talking about the first one to die and resurrect and live forever. As he says, I am the beginning of what God is doing now. In me is life forever, Jesus says. And then he says this. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the clearest and truest representation of who God is to you and to me. All of Scripture reveals God. Nowhere does Scripture reveal God more clearly than in Jesus. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God. In fact, John 14 says that. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I am God in human flesh. So nowhere do we get to learn more about Jesus or more clearly about Jesus than we do as we see the life of Jesus. We see it clearer. So Jesus says, I am the faithful and true witness. So what is it about our witness, the church's witness to the world, that Jesus is saying needs to be changed? If he is saying, I am the faithful and true witness, clearly he's revealing himself to a church for a reason, and that reason must be that we are not a faithful representation of the gospel of who God is, of who Christ is. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So I know your works. And again, we talked about this a lot last week. If you weren't here, Jesus is judging the churches by their works, right? Of the seven churches, he says this to five of them. And the other two, he says something similar. But clearly he says, I know your works. Now, he is not saying your works equal your salvation. He is saying that the gospel is free, but then in response, if you are truly in the gospel, if you are truly in Christ, you will have these works. The verse we used last week was Ephesians 2, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, so the gospel's free. It is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so clearly you don't work to earn your salvation. It's what you do later. It goes on and says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A lot of verses and stuff today, and so if you have the church app, they're all in the notes section of the app. If you can't write that fast or want to take a picture, cool, they're in the app though. Let's read verse 15 again. I know your works. So I'm judging you by what you do, not by what you say, not by what you profess to believe, by how you live it out. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. Now, this is unique. In this circumstance, both cold and hot are examples of good, right? The hot springs, good. Cool, cold water, refreshing, like therapeutic and healing, refreshing, both are good. Hot, cold, pick a lane, right? He says, but you're neither. I wish you were one or the other. And he says, listen, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. You're not good for this. You're not good for that. Verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Words you never want to hear Jesus say to you, right? In the original language, as you may imagine, it carries with it that I will vomit you out kind of vibe. So he says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. And again, hot or cold in this case, both are good. But instead, you're lukewarm, not good. Right? I think of, I like hot tea and I like iced tea. I like hot coffee. A lot of you drink iced coffee. Warm coffee, not so good, right? Warm tea, not the same. One is therapeutic, one is warm, one is soothing, one is refreshing. They serve purposes, he says, but you're neither one. And again, I know your works, you're neither one. So he's writing to them in an area, in a language they are very familiar with. They have these water issues. It is the one thing they can't control. They're wealthy, they're self-sufficient, they're all these things, but they have water issues. So not hot, not cold, lukewarm, absolutely resonates with every Laodicean. So the question is, what would make Jesus call a church lukewarm? And again, these are all rooted in Old Testament images. They're relevant to the city, but they're language that everybody would understand. So I'll take you all the way back to Leviticus 18. Now, God is telling the people to have gone into the land not to blend with the other nations. Remember syncretism from a few weeks ago. You don't mix your faith with other faiths. And here's what he's saying. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, being like the other nations, right? I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of those abominations, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. He says, listen, I judged the nations that were doing things that were not worshiping me, that were worshiping others. He says, and so the land vomited them out. And I, he's reminding them, I used you to displace the Canaanites. I used you to, as my judgment against them. He says, so don't mix with them. God tells Israel, don't mix with the people of the land in a way, not mix like racially miss, 
uh, mix religiously. Don't mix your faith with their faith practices. They were removed because of their faith practices. The land vomited them out. Don't you do that, or I'll vomit you out too. It's all about kind of mixing your faith, what God calls you to, or what Jesus calls you to, with something else. That's the same condition as the church in Laodicea. So here's a note for you, lukewarm Christianity. Lukewarm is attempting to live both in the world and in Christ, not wholly being Christ waters down our witness for Jesus and what life in him is to be. Mixing in the world with our faith is like finding that vegan at In-N-Out and how it undermines their message. And you're like, okay, listen, if you truly believe this, that burger's not that good. It completely says you don't believe all that that much. That it sounds good, but it, you don't live it out. Right, there has to be a million politics examples, right? People saying one thing and living another, undermining their beliefs. Pick your jersey, pick your team, figure out your explanation, there it is, right? We see this all the time, and what it does is undermine the message. And here's what he's saying, when you live in the world and not wholly in Christ, you water down the message and become an unfaithful witness for Christ. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You make me want to vomit you out of my mouth, Jesus says. Again, I just take this in. This is written to a church. It's written to like the people inside the room here, not to the world. We have expectation that they're not obedient, that they're not living like Jesus. It's to the people that should be, that profess to be, that say they're this, but are doing things that are not that. That say, I, I, I only eat this, and then we find them eating this, right? Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Another way of saying this is, like, I can be rich or prosperous. I don't need Jesus. Right? So Laodicea is known for its advanced medical care, especially their, their optical care. And yes, Jesus says, but you're spiritually blind. You can't even see your need. He says your wealth and your, ind your independence, but you don't know your spiritual need that you can't satisfy your spiritual needs with your wealth and your independence. Your textiles, your clothing, you're famous for this thing that you do and the clothes that you wear, but you're spiritually naked. I think the worst word in there is, and pitied. But you are to be pitied. You're so broken. It sounds so much like the church today. So independent, so trusting in finances, so trusting in medicine. And we go to the doctor even before we pray. That we think this is the solution and not God. That we are so dependent on human institution and human things that it waters down our belief in Christ. Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's responding to each of their perceived strengths. Places where they think they are good, Jesus is actually saying you're the exact opposite. You think you're so advanced here, you're actually blind. You're so independent, but you're actually completely in need and have nothing you can do about it. You think you look fancy. In your black wool garments that you are famous for, what you need to be and get from me white garments. He is speaking of a righteousness of their life. Here's what you need, and you can only get it from me. You think you have wealth. You need to buy gold from me, refined by fire. So what does it mean for Jesus to tell us to buy gold or clothes or whatever from him? Let's go back to his own words in Luke. Luke 9, he says, and he said to all, Jesus says to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it gain someone if they work so hard in this world to gain what this world offers and then, then they die and you can't take it with you? And yet, how 90, whatever percent of the time we're, we're aiming at things of this world. Jesus says, what it means to follow me is to deny this world and follow me. Whatever you lose here, you gain forever. The gold you wouldn't achieve here, you're buying gold from me, refined in fire forever. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. So clothed and rich in Christ, there's a note for you. We are to reorient everything in our lives to reach and disciple others, to be on the mission Jesus has sent us on. Families first and then others. And we're going to say that over and over again, especially as we lean into the new year, that the discipleship of our children in their faith is primary. God doesn't care if your son can throw a spiral, even if it pays for college. He cares that you disciple your son in Christ. So families first, and then others. As a, and then as a church, we accomplish the mission that Jesus gives us. Here is that mission. It's Matthew 28. Most of you have heard this or memorized this. And Jesus came to the disciples and he said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Your job, to, to reach the lost to teach them, baptize them, disciple them, teach them to obey. That's what we do with our families first and then with others. And, and reaching the nations does not mean going on the other side of the planet. It typically means going next door or in the room next to yours in your home. That we are to raise a family that loves Jesus first and foremost. Maybe you're the child in the family, not the parent. And the parents aren't believers. Well, that's obviously first job, right? Love them. Teach them about Jesus. But when, when you're a parent, your priority is in your home. If you're a husband, it's your wife. If you have kids, it's your kids. 
And then it is living on mission in your neighborhood, at your workplace, at the school you go to, wherever you are. It doesn't mean you need to go anywhere. The, the word go here is a participle, not a verb. It's a kind of while you are going, while you're living your life, make use of that life to be on mission. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Here's the good news. In a church that Jesus has nothing nice to say, right? Of the seven churches, five of them get compliments, right? Five of them get critique. Two of them get no critique. Two of them get no compliments. Just critique. To be fair, two of them get just blessing and no critique. So you can see this hits a span of churches and each church is different, has different needs, and has different strengths. Laodicea has no strengths. They have nothing to compliment. There's nothing that Jesus is like, hey, do more of that. Now get rid of this, but do more. He's like, listen, everything you're doing is undermining what it looks like to live in the gospel. You are so independent, self-sufficient. You think you've got it all handled. You really don't need me. You would never say that out loud, but that's what you do. I know your works, Jesus says. I know what you do, and what you do says more than what you profess here. Because it reveals what you truly believe. Just because you say meat is murder, it does not matter when you go to in and out And again, that's not the end of the world, but it's a good example. Because I don't believe anybody who's shouting meat is murder is going to in and out But I believe that a lot of people that are saying Jesus is Lord don't live that way. That they live like college is God. Like family is Savior. Like money is better than righteousness. See, I actually believe the vegan. I don't agree with the vegan. Not ready to give up my bacon, but, or in and out, for that matter. But I believe them. I believe they think that because I see their works. I see what they do. I have questions about the church for the same reason, because I see what we do. And so does Jesus. Here's the good news. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is these two verses, one in Hebrews, one in Proverbs, in Old Testament and New Testament. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Proverbs says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, and a, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Note, both the Old and the New Testament don't just say that if God loves you, he will discipline you, but they use the metaphor of family discipleship. You with me? That's the premise. See, we've lost sight of that. Part of our lukewarmness is that we've lost that the authority, the responsibility, the onus is on the family to disciple the children. We think that's what they do on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights at the church. That may be true, but it's not our job. Our job is to partner with you. You answer for your children, I answer for the church. Note that the metaphor or the relationship or the comparison is the home. The good news is this. If you're hearing this as a critique of you, if you're feeling rebuked or reproved or corrected or whatever, it's because God loves you. It is not to slam you, to shame you, to condemn you. It's not that. 
It's to improve you. To reprove is to point out what needs to improve. Now I sound like a Southern Baptist. All right. If I just had three words that started with the same letter, I'd be in. All right. Verse 19, let's read it again. Those whom I love are reproved and disciplined, so be zealous and repent. So what's the answer? Be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. He says he loves them enough. Jesus says, I love you enough to tell you the truth. This is where you're off track, which is kind of everywhere, but this is where you're off track. He says, but I love you. I want to tell you that. Here's your job. Be zealous and repent. Zealous is defined as showing great energy or enthusiasm for a cause or objective. Showing great energy or enthusiasm for a cause or objective. Right? Striving to hit the mark, even if you fall short. Right? Great energy and enthusiasm. You want to be here. The cause or objective. The objective is Jesus. The cause is the gospel. Striving with great energy and enthusiasm towards that is if nothing else matters. You see, the gospel is that. It's that Jesus loves you so much that he set aside everything, all the comforts and glory and all that he had so that he could come and enter into the human world, into human flesh. Because we had sinned and separated ourselves from God, Jesus became flesh. Jesus, creator, eternal God, set down everything, all the comforts of being that, and entered into human flesh, lowered himself, Philippians 2 says, humbled himself, and lived like us, and then eventually died for us, was buried in a grave like we too shall be. But Jesus resurrected from the grave to give us life. But see, he calls us to live like him in the flesh, that we are to set aside this world, that we are to set aside the comforts and the easiness and the, and the distraction and, and the, the off focus of this world, and that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of Hebrews says. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith who for the joy before him, for the goal, set aside everything that would get in his way. Fix your eyes on Jesus, he teaches us. See, as we aim high, we are imperfect, we will miss. The problem is we're not even aiming here yet, we're still aiming in the middle. Still aiming at lukewarm, which by the way, we're succeeding at. We need to aim for Christ. Titus 2 says this, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for people for his own possession, who are, listen, zealous for good works. We, I think we have that, note, that, slide, uh, that verse for the screen, but to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works who put all their energy and enthusiasm into him and the gospel, what he achieved for us and what we can share with others for, to be zealous for good works, not saved by works, saved by grace. That salvation is a free gift from God, but when we are saved, when we are transformed, we live as if we understand what we were saved from, that we recognize that we are saved from the wrath of God to an eternity with him. 
and that we know that eternity is forever and that this is a short time that we will live with great energy and enthusiasm for him, for Jesus. Now, I wish all the, all the verses from here on out were better, but they're not. It's this one that breaks my heart. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. Now, it sounds good. And a lot of people use this verse out of context. They use this verse when they, maybe they're sharing the gospel with somebody who does not know Jesus. And they'll say, listen, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. And if you just open the door, he'll come in and eat with you. And that may indeed be true. That's not what this verse says. Here's what this verse says. He says he's outside the church knocking. Not in the church. You imagine Jesus just outside those two doors. You're like, hey. So I know you're doing church, but I'm not in there. Like I'm outside. Why don't you, the church, let me in first? That for me is the heartbreak of this verse. That Jesus says he is outside the church and wants in. They need to let him in. See, they are so self-independent or self-dependent or wealth-dependent or medical-dependent or whatever that they are not dependent upon Christ at all, that hits home with us. That we live so much for this world, that we depend so much on this world, that what we strive for is this world. That we become so self-sufficient that we are not dependent upon Jesus at all. He's the genie in the lamp we rub when we need something but not the focal point of every moment of every day. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will give the right to come sit with me, he says. Here's the parallel. He says, just as I conquered. See, Jesus became flesh and lived this life focused on nothing but God, and he is our model. I'm not your model. Love John McClurg and Amaudi and, and John Evenhouse, our elders. They're not your model. Jesus is your model. We should be pointed enough at Jesus where he can follow us to get there, but I'm not the model. I'm the same flawed version that you and everybody else is. Jesus is the model. He said, if you can overcome this world the way I overcame this world, and, and he doesn't say do it on your own. See, in faith, in Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit. That's the very promise of baptism we keep talking about, that you're empowered to live for him. You're empowered to lift your eyes up out of this world and fix your eyes on him. That yes, you are forgiven and your heart has changed and you're made new. You're also empowered to live this out. That's why Jesus says, listen, I love you. I, I want you to change. I'm telling you because I want to be in with you. And you have what you need. If you're in Christ, truly in Christ, you have what you need. You're empowered to live for Christ. The question we have to wrestle with is, okay, so... Am I in? And you don't have to worry. You gotta know where am I? Why am I fixed? Why am I fixed on this world? 
Why am I not fixed on Christ? He says, be zealous and repent. Let your eyes open and say, that's my target, not in the middle. That, perfect, holy, Jesus, the gospel, that's my target. And I'm going to strive, that's zealous, I'm going to strive for that. He says, and repent, turn from the other things. Again, he never calls us to do this in our own strength. He empowers us to do this. He stands at the door and knocks. He said, listen, all you got to do is open the door. I'll come in and dine with you. Like, I want to lead you home. But you said you don't need me. You got it handled. So there I am. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, I'm not here. Jesus closes this as he closes every other verse to the churches with these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, this is not something that was just true in Laodicea or just true today. This is something ubiquitous. This is something that has been always a struggle. This is the defining culture of Laodicea. They are lukewarm, like the water that feeds into them is unusable and not refreshing and not therapeutic, and their one source of water is muddy, that's who they are as a church. Self-sufficient, believing in their wealth instead of their, instead of their gospel. That they have become lukewarm and not fit for any use. So Jesus says, but I want to fix that. I love you and I want to change that. If you'll let me in, I'll lead the way. And then Jesus says, as he always does, let the, let the churches hear. If you have an ear, but you're here, you all have ears. If you have an ear, let you hear. Sitting here isn't the same as living this out. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him respond to what the Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, to the churches, plural. Remember, the local church is the critical piece of the puzzle. Like the family is the most important component for discipleship. That's the, the most important, the family unit is the most important thing for discipleship. The church is the most important thing to keep our lives on track and focused at Je on Jesus. To equip us to be the disciplers, to be the, the reachers of the lost, if you will. Yes, we know. Only God can change a heart. But we're invited to go to work with him, to be on his mission, his cause. Be zealous and repent. Fix your eyes up higher on Christ and turn from sin. Hear what Jesus, hear what his spirit says to the churches. I'll close with this verse, 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Two weeks ago, I showed up here, no voice, sick as a dog. And may have done one of the best messages I think I've done in a long time. And I had quadrupled my amount of prayer for that message. Because I didn't want to sound like a frog, first of all. I wasn't cool enough to be Barry White. But I didn't have the energy to do this. But I knew God did. I knew that Jesus did. That reminds me all the time that it's my weaknesses that Jesus is made strong in, not my strengths. 
My effort from there on out is to pray just as much as if I had no voice, no energy, no nothing today. Because it is the same Jesus and the same power that uses today as two weeks ago when I was sick. But my, the lesson I learn is, it's never my strength that Jesus is using. It's always my flaws. It's always my shortcomings. It's always my weaknesses. Just as Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. It is your strength, not our strength. It is your grace, not our own. It is your spirit, not our ability. You are the one that allows us and empowers us and leads us so that we may do right. Not just do right things, but be on the right mission, dependent upon you rightly. Jesus, we need to repent of being so satisfied with this world. This is not our home. And we need to repent of being self-sufficient and independent or money, medicine, culture dependent. We need to be zealous for you, dependent upon you alone. Not a bigger home, not a better college, not a better anything, just dependent upon you wherever you may take us. So Jesus, will you forgive us and help us to turn to you? It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite our elders to come forward. As always, we have communion for you. Our deacons are here for the place for you to give your connection card or your offering today. If you're a follower of Jesus, who is truly living for Jesus and not this world, this is for you. That Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took his body, took bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And the cup, he says, it's my blood shed for you. And he called us to participate in his sacrifice. For as long as we are here, we eat and drink of the cup and the bread, and we proclaim the gospel that it may strengthen us for tomorrow. So will you guys please stand as we sing worship, and I invite you to communion.